Welcome to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. We'll be speaking to ex-conspiracy theorists, exploring their journeys in and out of the rabbit hole of misinformation, as well as experts. Yes, those people who've decided to completely disregard this decade. Well, we're bringing them back because, and this might just be me, years of study trumps a three minute YouTube video. Join us as we explore unconscious bias and address those who would sacrifice truth, integrity and objectivity on the altar of disinformation, propaganda and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini founder and CEO of Shoutout UK, here to challenge your understanding over the world around you and hopefully not challenge your attention span. First, they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Quoted in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., in the Holocaust Memorial Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, and by the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, which was set up by the British government, these words define much of the reaction to one of human history's most tragic moments. They reflect a blatant disregard, a dismissiveness, an unwillingness to accept responsibility for the suffering of others, and in particular, of the Jewish people. Many of us know that statistic. Approximately 6 million European Jews were murdered by the Nazis. But the statistic we will never know is how many additional lives these atrocities touched, even after the liberation of the camps. The families who mourned and still mourn the empty spaces in family trees, and at Seder tables forever. We will never understand, and we will never see, what we can do is listen and learn. We can give a recording mic to those with knowledge of the origins of hatred, and we can amplify their messages in the hope that such hatred will never be spread again. And while some may attempt to spread that hatred and misinformation, we can arm people with the tools they need to identify it and fight back. This is what political and media literacy and this media-minded podcast with the US Embassy is all about. This episode explores the underlying cause of the suffering described above, anti-Semitism. We will discuss how and when this form of hatred began, and how anti-Semitism has continued and evolved, and why the Jewish people are so regularly the focus of many a conspiracy theory, from their supposedly tight grip on all media outlets, to their expertise in the field of space lasers. Helping us navigate the outer realms of this universe, channeling our inner Captain Kirk and going where no podcast has gone before, 
is William Brewstein, a history professor at West Virginia University and an expert in anti-Semitism and its development. We are also joined by Dave Schechter, a journalist with over 30 years of experience under his belt, having written for a host of American news publications, including CNN and the Atlanta Jewish Times. We are joined today by Dr. William Brustein. Thank you so much for joining me, Doctor. Pleasure. So first of all, can you tell me a little bit about your educational background? Yes, um, I went to the University of Connecticut uh, for my undergraduate degree. And during my third year there, I had the opportunity to do a year abroad in France. Uh, um, and that really opened me up to uh, a world outside of the US. And then for a master's degree, I went to Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and spent the first year in their Bologna Center in Italy, and then uh, the second year of the degree in Washington, DC. From there, I went on to uh, the University of Washington mm -hmm. in Seattle and uh, received a master's degree in sociology and a PhD in sociology. And after that, for the last 40 years or so, I've been a professor at a number of different universities, as well as a senior administrator over the last 20 years. Amazing, amazing. And tell me a little, little bit about your, um, your research into uh, anti-Semitism or around anti-Semitism. Well, I, being brought up Jewish, it was always the, uh, the, the interest in trying to understand uh, how the world came to a point in the 1930s and 40s uh, where anti-Semitism, particularly in Europe, uh, became such a, a, a prevalent feature of European society. And then obviously the Holocaust mm. from an early point in time, uh, I, I wanted to understand that. But what really kind of jettisoned the, the, the research was uh, I published a book in 1996 called The Logic of Evil. Um, the social origins of the Nazi party. And um, that was at that time, the largest study of actual individuals who joined the Nazi party. I collaborated with a colleague in Germany at the Free University, Professor Falter, Jürgen Falter. And um, in trying to understand the mode who and why people joined the Nazi party, interestingly, I came away with uh, something that surprised me that it wasn't particularly anti-Semitism that brought so many Germans to vote for and join the party, though anti-Semitism was certainly a prominent feature of the Nazi party. It was more the economic programs and how they stood out from other parties' programs. And at the same time, another book appeared, one that sold over a million copies by Daniel Jonah Goldhagen called Hitler's Willing Executioners. And in his book, he said, well, the Holocaust had to happen or be perpetrated by the Germans because there's something unique in German culture about with regard to Jews in terms of qualitative and quantitative anti-Semitism. And I was somewhat bothered by that in that in doing his study, he never looked at anti-Semitism in other countries. And to make a comparison, Plus, there was very little empirical evidence, at least from my 
from my perspective. So at that point in time, I said, what I really need to do again is to do a comparative historical, but quantitative study of anti-Semitism in Europe, trying to understand how Europeans um, became so indifferent to the fate of the Jews on the eve of World War II. Because a Holocaust would not have happened if there weren't so many bystanders or indifferent individuals. So I wanted to understand that. And that's how I launched into this major project that I put together a major uh, international research team when I was at the University of Minnesota as a professor and funded by the National Science Foundation and a number of other foundations, which turned into the, the Roots of Hate, which was a, a, a major study of anti-Semitism, particularly from 1879 to uh, 1939 uh, in five different countries and uh, and, and that really began this period of maybe 15, 20 years of research just on anti-Semitism. And, and I followed that up with a number of uh, new works. One came out with Cambridge in 2015 called The Socialism of Fools, which focuses on left, the left-wing anti-Semitism and the origins of that, going back to the Enlightenment. And now I'm working on a new book called Phantom Enemies, Anti-Semitism Without Jews, uh, in Germany, France, and the U.S., um, which I am uh, in the process of finishing. So the research has focused, again, particularly on the fact of how people became so indifferent to the fate of the Jews mm -hmm. on the eve of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it reminds me of, um, uh, what was that that poem that, um, uh, you know, they, uh, the first day came for the communists and I said nothing, then they came for the... Uh, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm completely blanking now, but you you know which poem I'm talking yes, about. Yes, I do. And then right, and the fact is, and that they came for me, and there was no one left. Is kind of I mean, I'm no butchering it exactly. completely, but <laughs> I think you get my point. Um, and that that indifference is really is really quite striking and quite quite powerful because it's not just about, um, you know, prejudice and people and and you know nasty people doing doing stuff, but it's also the fact of bystanders doing nothing to. Um, to to deal with 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 said issue. Now many believe that anti-Semitism began with the Nazis, but anti-Semitism is a multi-headed beast. Its many facets and tropes originating over a century before the Nazis took power, and evolving ever dangerously to this day. Anti-Semitism seems to be quite unique as a form of prejudice. Um, why is that? Well, well, particularly in monotheistic societies, um, because again, I think we have to keep in mind that I don't think we can make the same case for the prevalence of anti-Semitism, let's say in Buddhist societies or Hindu societies, mm -hmm. uh, Asian societies in particular. But in Western societies, what I've argued has been that of the different forms of prejudice. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about um, prejudice, let's say against Roma, Sinti, or prejudice in the US, the historic racism against uh, blacks, or um, in Ireland between Protestant Catholics and uh, Protestants and uh, Roman Catholics, that anti-Semitism as a form of prejudice is so multidimensional. 
Right. You look at its history. There's the the religious arguments against the Jews, and I can expound upon that um, uh, in a moment if you'd like. There's the racial arguments. And just recently in, in the United States, I don't know if you received the news, but how Whoopi Goldberg has been in the news. Uh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. She said it, was, it wasn't about she race. Made, right. Hmm. And obviously, you know, the Nazis made a big point of Jews being not only an inferior race, but a, uh, a, a, a race that is, is in combat with the Aryan race. Um, so you have the racial argument. And then you had the economic argument against the Jews. Uh, and then you have the political argument. And there, particularly uh, through the protocols of the elders of Zion, the fact that the Jews are conspiring to take world power and to, to punish Christian uh, societies for uh, the fact that uh, Jews have been outcast in Christian societies going back 2,000 years. So what I've argued is that there have been these four different tropes or forms of anti-Semitism that you do not find in other forms of prejudice. As William briefly highlights, the story of anti-Semitism dates back thousands of years, way before anyone knew what a Nazi was, or what anything called Germany was for that matter. Here's the short, when I say short, I mean short version of the birth of anti-Semitism. In the 12th and 13th centuries, an all-powerful Catholic church got its cash by taxing anyone in Europe who owned land. Now this would have been fine and dandy, if not for the large community of people who didn't subscribe to the religion of the Pope and Christianity. These people being the Jews, of course, who refused to pay this tax on the basis of their belief system. Obviously, this didn't go down too well. In response, the church started taking the Jewish people's land, ghettoizing them and giving their land to Christians willing to pay the church's tax. Now, normally this would, you'd hope, lead to a nationwide human rights outcry. But in order to quell these uprisings, the church started a campaign demonizing the Jews labeling them as the enemy and creating a growing resentment against the people punished purely for not believing in Christianity. This resentment was only made worse by the bubonic plague because the Jewish people were ghettoized and isolated from the rest of Christian society. Far fewer of them suffered from the plague compared to the Christian population. So naturally, the Christians saw this logic. Let the Jewish people be and moved on with their lives. Just kidding, could you imagine? They labeled the Jewish people as naturally immune heathens and blamed them for causing the plague in the first place. As time passed, what began as a single land grab policy and a single piece of misinformation relating to a single religious population had a knock-on effect on the way that the Jewish people were viewed and stereotyped for centuries to come. Because Jews were no longer allowed to be landowners, for example, they were pushed into various other trades that the church viewed as sinful, the main one being usury, the industry we now know predominantly as the banking industry. So no, Jews aren't and never were money-hungry, greedy or coveting. 
they just weren't allowed to work anywhere else besides the industry that, ironically for the church, had extremely high profit margins. Go figure. And yet, it is true that many Jews did indeed work in the banking industry at the time. And this nugget or kernel of truth is something that conspiracy theorists have taken and ran with for centuries. But this was done without any mention or potentially any understanding of the origins of this reality and the justification for it at the time. Very often, conspiracy theories of all kinds blossom from a nugget of truth, something William describes in his book, The Roots of Hate, as a piece of history marginally true, which is used as the basis of any entire conspiracy theory. Something that peddlers of this theory can always point back to in order to justify their pretty crazy ideas. Even today, many will point to the Rothschild family as a beacon of Jewish control and corruption, when in reality, they're just a family of wealthy people. But unfortunately, that hasn't stopped many from trying desperately to prove, or at the very least peddle, conspiracy theories abound. Was there a like a, a, a constructed logic? Because there seemed to be, I mean, ironically talking about myths and disinformation, I mean, these are prime examples of historic forms of 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 disinformation but um yeah was was there was there an an original logic behind why creating such a such a campaign which has now created hate that's transcended uh many many years yeah um it's a very interesting question you raise in that um conspiracies tend to just have this kernel small kernel often of of a truth to it that people mm-hmm. and, and and that allows it to you know germinate. So you see, there's a sense of linking it to something that people can understand mm-hmm. that gives many of these conspiracies legs. I mean, the worst one throughout history for the Jews, particularly that the Nazis used and many others that Henry Ford used in the U.S. That the Times of London played a role in the Morning Post in the 1920s was that of the protocols of the elders of Zion. Now it was demonstrated that this afterwards that this is a forgery, but nevertheless, what made this best-selling book that is still being circulated today in parts of the world, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which argues that there is this secret house of David of Jews who are plotting to take over world power by creating disruption and and wars. But when you look at how this evolved, it was that the the argument, what what is said about this Protocols of the Elders of Zion, this notorious pamphlet, was that there was a secret meeting of the wise men, Jewish elders in Basel, Switzerland in 1897, and that they came up with this plot that they would be able to sow disorder in the world through depressions, economic depressions, through war, and that they would be able to take world power. And this would develop, and as I said, become very popular. And the argument here was that, well, 
It was that by, by accident, the minutes of this gathering of the Jews uh, somehow secretly fell into the hands of this uh, of certain individuals in, in Russia at the time, and that that's how they became aware of the plot. But what's interesting, again, because you asked the question about logic, in 1897, it was uh, theater Theodore Herzl, the father of Zionism, um, convened the first Zionist Congress in Basel, in Switzerland. And so people could say, aha, 1897, yes, wasn't there that first Zionist conference? And so you see, but it had nothing to do with this house of David and its plot, but how it was able to say, ah, oh, there's this kernel of, you know, of truth here. And, and that is, um so interesting you know that 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 kernel that of that hint of truth or that that slight um fact i guess or or event that happened that you can you you it's like the best the best probably the worst word to use for it but the the most effective um conspiracy theories or, or bits of disinformation um have that little kernel of of, of truth that one little thing that say happened in, in this case that you know that that first conference um yeah. because that then you can then spin all these other lies from it you know like you can you can because you can then always point to that one event that actually happened and then say well that's that that, that thing happened so why not all the rest now this all being said about anti-semitism beginning well before the nazis that doesn't mean that the nazis should be voided in this discussion in the 1930s the third reich or Third Empire, as they termed themselves, used the Jewish people as a scapegoat for many of the societal ills facing Germany at the time, following Germany's loss of World War I and the reparations that Germany needed to pay the Allied countries. But once again, it's important to know that anti-Semitism wasn't unique to the Nazis, not before their time or during their time either. I'd be remiss to not to not bring this up and be curious to know that how and why did anti-semitism evolve um you know whilst hitler was in power and whilst the nazi party was in power in germany and and more specifically the the nazi propaganda machine was just utterly phenomenal in the way they managed to um demonize and, and essentially win over an entire population in a lot of ways to um, believing this this completely false, insane conspiracy, um, yeah. and it'd be great to, to to know your thoughts on that. Right. Well, I, I recommend to people again uh, a little self promotion here. My book, The Roots of Hate, which came out with Cambridge University Press in two thousand and three, which will delve into the topic you raised much more deeply. But again, with the Nazis, yes, their twenty five point program of, you know, in 1920, only had four of the 25 points that dealt with Jews in terms particularly that Jews were considered to be uh, different race, non-Germans, and would not be, uh, have the ability to be considered as citizens. But what the Nazis basically had in, in these early years in terms of their, you know, the anti-Jewish narratives or the anti-Semitism didn't make them that unique before 1933 in, in terms of what they were saying, because as I point out in the book, The Roots of Hate, you've got some of the same things being said 
uh, in Romania, during the Dreyfus affair in mm. France in the 1890s, even in England, but both the left and the right. Uh, so what anti-Semitism was, yes, part of the Nazi problem. And, and, and what I argue in Roots of Hate, and I'm able to show quantitatively, is that before 1933, that anti-Semitism in Germany wasn't that unique compared to other countries. But it was there as part of Hitler. Hitler was most, uh, uh, you know, uh, mostly driven by getting power. Mm-hmm. And it was a power was, grab, essentially. Like he, he failed with and, the uh, Munich Putsch and then tried it democratically. Right. And mm-hmm. whatever would get him the power. And what I argue in the earlier book, The Logic of Evil, was that it was more the counter cyclical, the, the Keynesian type economic programs that the Nazis put forward that enabled them to eventually win over so many supporters and get the power. So anti-Semitism was never in those early years, what I say, that primary driving force. But once the Nazis get in power and you see the, the, their ability through propaganda mm. to make the argument that first of all, bringing up Judas Iscariot, that the stab in the back, that the reason why Germany collapsed and, 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 and sued for an armistice in world, at the end of World War I was because the Jews stabbed them in the back. And there were a number of Jews who were in you know, the Reichstag and who had roles. And so you could point to them, though that's certainly- Again, it goes back to those nuggets of truth, true. right? It goes right. back to those- uh... and, and then you get the great um, inflation period of 1921, 22 mm. in Germany, uh, you get the, the depression hit Germany harder than um, most other European uh, and industrialized countries. And so the, the Nazis are able, I mean, they have more of a fertile landscape here to work with. Starting in 33, when you're in power, the Nazis move very deliberately, but very gradually to move against the Jews. Mm-hmm. And the first, the April boycott of 1933 of Jewish stores at the Nazis launch wasn't very successful because many Germans said, well, the best prices, the best merchandise are in these stores, I'm gonna shop there. And so then the Germans, the Nazi party realized we have to, through our propaganda machine, through using the, the uh, legal system here in Germany to move slowly. And they do. They, first in April of 1933, they passed the civil service law with the agrarian clause that, that removes Jews from the civil service jobs, the highest civil service jobs. Then in 1935, September of 35, they passed the Nuremberg laws, which was the protection of German blood. And that limits contact between Jews and Aryans. And so like a Jewish household cannot uh, employ a Christian domestic uh, who is under the age of 45, so certain laws. This is followed in the same month by the Reich, Reich citizenship law, where the Nazis define who is a Jew. And they, in this way of going, well, uh, is it both your parents? Is it one parent? Is it uh, one uh, grandparent? And so they come up with all these different categories of who's a Jew based on the uh, lineage going back. And then this is followed in 1938 with Jewish doctors and Jewish lawyers are no longer to treat Aryan patients. 
so, um, or Aryan clients. Mm-hmm. And then finally, in January 1st of 1939, you get the law that Jews now will have to, if they have certain uh, names or, or uh, uh, first names, they have to change it so they can be identified as Jews. So if you're a male, your name has to be Israel. If you're a female Jew, it has to be Sarah. And so this takes over a span of six years, step by step by step. This is how the Nazis are able to slowly but gradually move to mm-hmm. set the uh, foundations for what eventually would be mm-hmm. you know, leading into the Holocaust. The propaganda machine that led to the Holocaust has never completely turned off. The machine has shifted its focus to the digital media space. This form of hate, among others, found deep in the comment sections of Twitter posts and Facebook groups alike, alongside all social media platforms propagating anti-Semitic bile day in and day out. The digital age has affected the way that anti-Semitism is presented and is spread and is difficult to navigate, which is why we've recruited a seasoned vet in the media and journalistic sphere to help us out. So we're joined now by Dave Schechter. Hello, Dave. Good afternoon. Afternoon, afternoon. Thank you for uh, for joining me. Um, first of all, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and experience in journalism to date? Well, what you're going to find is that the older the person you interview, the longer the brief bio becomes, but I'll try to keep it brief. I grew up north of Chicago. I came into journalism through my father, who was an editor and publisher of publications in the healthcare and hospital field. I have an undergraduate degree in political science, a graduate degree in journalism. My first byline came on a school paper when I was 13 years old. I began my professional career in 1978, yes, 1978, as a newspaper reporter. Then I worked in local television news for a while. And my wife and I married in 1985. And shortly after that, we entered a study program in Israel, which I promptly quit several weeks in and found work as CNN's Jerusalem Bureau producer. A couple of years later, we returned to the United States. We both worked for CNN in Atlanta. I spent 26 years attached to CNN's national or US news desk. But for the last several years, I've been writing freelance, primarily for Jewish publications. And I should add that in a case of really bad parenting, our daughter, the oldest of our three children, is a newspaper uh, political and government editor in the state of South Carolina. <laughs> I love how you uh, you framed that as a, a case of bad parenting. Well, as she says, I had no choice. What was I going to go into? <laughs> it's funny because sometimes you uh, you end up doing the opposite of what your parents do, or exactly what your parents do. Um, and and where does your interest in um, primarily kind of the Jewish affairs and kind of Jewish publications stem from? I don't know that I had an original interest in working in Jewish publications. In fact, if you had told me at the beginning of my career that that's what I would be doing now, I would have laughed. <laughs> but in uh, in terms of American Judaism, mm. I was raised pretty much in what's called the Reform Movement, uh, which would be non-Orthodox 
not secular, but closer to secular than Orthodox. Kind of like modern version. Modern. Uh, this means that we observed and celebrated the major holidays. We attended uh, Shabbat or Sabbath services rather often when I was a child, but we were not rigorous in our religious practice. Being Jewish, there was a natural interest in the modern nation of Israel because we were taught about it in Sunday school. And as a child who read newspapers and listened to radio news and watched television news, whenever there were stories about Israel in the news, I may have paid a little extra attention. Now, I've been rather fortunate that at various points in my journalism life, I've been able to travel a bit in the Middle East. And at this point in my career, to be honest, I actually enjoyed the freelance work. And I find doing it within the Jewish community, it has its challenges, but I find it relatively rewarding. We'd be remiss um, if we weren't to talk about um, anti-Semitism. Um, I mean, we've seen a bunch of uh, tragedies. We've seen um, discourse around anti-Semitism uh, increase. And considering your, your, your extensive experience in, in the journalistic field, um, how has the rhetoric or discourse around anti-Semitism evolved during your time as a journalist? All right. So we're talking about a period of, call it roughly 40, 45 years now, which... Mm -hmm impresses me that it's been that long. Anti-Semitism is referred to as the oldest hate. Mm -hmm. It dates hundreds of years back, if not further. Uh, I would say that more recently, uh, there's been a change in how anti-Semitism is presented in a public way. Once upon a time, these were things that were said behind closed doors. Uh, they were said behind closed doors in offices, in clubs, in private domains, or they were things that were spoken by the most fringe and disregarded elements of society. Right. Uh, the most egregious examples would be reported on in the Jewish press, but less often in the secular press. Now, that has changed. Keeping it relatively out of the public light at the time. It wasn't of major secular audience interest. Mm -hmm. You know, the Jewish population in the United States, as it is in the UK, isn't not terribly large as a percentage. Mm -hmm. uh, so within the community, yes, these things were discussed and reported, but not, not in the broader, uh, broader media. But yeah. I would say this, the internet has changed almost everything about uh, how we communicate with each other but it has freed people to express aloud whatever they think, no matter the degree of inaccuracy, no matter the degree of offensiveness. In fact, uh, in some corners of the online world, the more offensive you are and the more outrageous you are, the larger the audience you attract. So oh, yeah. where decades ago it was something said quietly, today it's something that you hear more loudly. Now, I want to make one other point. The Jewish community in the United States is hardly monolithic. There's diversity in terms of race, there's diversity in terms of ethnicity, diversity in terms of political beliefs. And I wanna say, particularly when it comes to Israel, there's a very lively discourse every day online among Jews in the United States, journalists, authors, you know, academics, over how you talk about Israel, what is and is not anti-Semitic. Mm 
-hmm. And I say that because uh, we, and I hear I'm saying the Jewish community, talk about these issues amongst ourselves. Where it becomes particularly sensitive is where people who are not in the community make pronouncements and statements about the Jewish community. I mean, it would be the same as if someone who is not Muslim makes comments about the Muslim community, uh, where in the Muslim community, they may discuss these issues among themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting that you mentioned, obviously, um, uh, you know, the fact that a lot of this stuff, as you say, used to be talked about primarily within um, the Jewish community, it was something that the Jewish community were aware of, um, we're talking about as you would, you know, considering it involves you. Um, but now it seems to be talked about very openly, um, some of the most outrageous or insane or just downright wrong views are kind of uh, mouthed openly. Uh, as you say, probably the more outrageous you are on some parts of the internet, you know, the, the, the wider your audience. Um, and I wanted to ask, talking about what we'd consider, you know, established media outlets. So media outlets that have some sort of a reputation to be to be credible. And then looking at kind of new media outlets that have kind of come up in in the modern day, um, which a lot of the times because their base form was primarily online, have zero accountability to to fact or evidence of any kind. Um have have you seen that there is now a, a stark difference in the way various outlets and I include I say the word outlets quite quite loosely because I'm including online uh, media outlets in this as well. Uh in the various way that these outlets cover anti Semitism and cover these kind of issues. Well, I, I use the word cover as in reporting on, but I think what you may be referring to is broader than just reporting. It's commentary. Reporting on, commenting on, yeah. I mean, it commenting seems like... Commenting on, offering your own personal opinions on. Look, which, which seems to be what people associate journalism with more and more now, which is wrong. Which uh, I confess I would be accused of being old school in, in, in that regard, where preferring to report... Uh, material and not offer conjecture, uh, which is different than context, uh, not offer opinion, which is different than context. Look, uh, the Jewish media in the United States is, is newspapers, it's online sites, it's podcasts. Uh, that media has become hypersensitive to uh, incidents of anti-Semitism and probably reports them with greater frequency and greater depth than it used to. Now, let's take the Secular newspapers with the big national audiences, the uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, mm -hmm. uh, they will report on incidents of anti-Semitism if they reach a certain threshold, and they will report on the issue if there is a reason, uh, something in the news, a peg for them to hang a story on to talk about the broader issue. Local newspapers that industry in this country has been pretty much gutted by hedge funds that have bought up newspaper chains. Now, the reason I mention this is that means that the newspaper staffs in a lot of local newspapers uh, are much smaller than they used to be. There might not be a reporter who focuses on issues of religion, so some stories may be missed. Uh, now, television needs pictures. So the more outrageous, I want to say outrageous, the more visual an incident, uh, a clash between uh, people, uh, a physical assault, 
uh, graffiti or vandalism. Mm -hmm. uh, that makes that gives television a picture on which to tell a story. Most of the online world is not visual. It's pretty much written. It's uh, with photographs if they're attached. And in that online world, there's far less internal governance, if you will, of uh, what gets uh, not reported, but what gets presented, how mm -hmm. it gets presented. As you say, uh, there is uh, a great deal less accountability. I mean, the organizations that I've worked for throughout my life uh, had a substantial degree of accountability. If I messed up an article writing for a newspaper, I heard about it. If CNN messed up a story, they heard about it. If I mess up something writing for a Jewish newspaper or uh, here or elsewhere, uh, I hear about it. But for a lot of online sites, they don't have that degree of accountability. They don't have that degree of governance and what appears to be freedom um, could be interpreted as a license to present things that, as I said earlier, may not be accurate, uh, are presented simply because they're outrageous. So across the spectrum of the types of media, uh, there are differences in how things are reported from the hypersensitive to the, it has to reach a much larger threshold before it'll get you know, presented in some. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I mean, I'd argue that actually there is almost zero. In fact, I'd say there's probably zero accountability when it comes, when it comes to stuff online. Um, well, I'll, I'll say this material is that uh, there are so many online outlets. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, you, it costs nothing to set one up. So. It costs nothing to set one up. Uh, they're not quite as numerous as the stars in the sky, but probably getting there. And, you know, every day I run into a new one. Mm -hmm. uh, every day I run into a, uh, a new uh, aggregating service or a new site where somebody is offering this material or, mm -hmm. or making these statements. They are so widespread that it is impossible to have a grasp of how many there are and how accountable they are either to themselves or to someone else yeah no definitely definitely and it's funny because a lot of them all say the kind of very similar tagline of uh you know telling the stories that no one wants you to hear or some i have to i have to say just as an old school person mm. so to speak that canard oh the, the mainstream media uh, the legacy media, the established media, they aren't covering these stories. Well, the fact of the matter is they generally are. And if you would read past page one of your newspaper, or you might listen more than th uh, three minutes into the hourly newscasts uh, on radio or television, you may hear these stories. They're being reported. They're just not the amplitude that they used to have when there were a smaller number of media, those mm. stories had a greater, uh, a greater reach, but there are so, there is so much media today in all forms that these stories may not get as much attention outside of the actual readers of, you know, that newspaper. But this idea that 
well, you know, the media doesn't cover these things. Yes, they do. You're just not mm -hmm. looking for them or you're not paying attention or you don't like the way they're being presented because they don't fit your view of the world. Yeah. Or they genuinely aren't being covered. And the reason for that is because they're not true, which is another okay. issue. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, won't, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Not at all. This brings us to the events of today. Well, more specifically, to the 12th of August 2017, Charlottesville, Virginia. Bearing lit tiki torches, military uniforms, featuring loaded firearms, crosses, and Confederate flags, hundreds of white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and right-wing militia groups took to the streets in protest against the existence of Jewish people in their country, among other minority groups. The protesters filled the area, leading to counter-protests that eventually broke out in violence. In the end, one person was killed and 19 were injured. But this was not the only anti-Semitic attack on American soil as of late. Just over a year later, in October 2018, 46-year-old Robert Gregory Bowers opened fire in the middle of the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for over 20 minutes. He killed 11 people and wounded six, including several Holocaust survivors, in what is now the deadliest attack on the Jewish community in the history of the United States. These horrific displays of anti-Semitism in America are by no means isolated and by no means unique to the States. Just last year, four people were arrested in London for shouting anti-Semitic abuse at the top of their lungs from a convoy of cars. Videos of the men shouting the abuse went viral, and whilst Boris Johnson condemned the event, saying it had no place in British society, this way of thinking survives nonetheless and continues to grow in America, Britain, and across Europe. One of the things that um, I think no one can dispute is that the Jewish community has seen multiple tragedies um, of crazy horrific proportion in the in in the magnitude as well as the frequency in in, in the u.s in in the states and, and just in the past five years alone particularly atrocities as uh, as pittsburgh or uh charlottesville can you describe where you were during these events and how that how, how those made you feel let me start with charlottesville uh mm -hmm. which will take a couple of minutes uh that began ostensibly as a protest against plans by the city of Charlottesville to remove a statue of a Confederate general from a public park. Right. By the time that weekend uh, in August 2017 came about, you had a variety of white supremacist, white nationalist, anti-Jewish, anti-African-American, anti-immigrant groups all descend on Charlottesville. With, as you kind of would expect. But with somewhat different agendas. Right. Now, I was at home that weekend in Atlanta, uh, paying attention to those events online and on television. And I'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, Pittsburgh was a different matter. As it happened, uh, on that day in October 2018, my wife and I were driving from Atlanta about an hour and a half or so to Montgomery, Alabama, where there is an ex very unique memorial to lynching of African-Americans. And there is a museum there associated with that subject. Uh, we were about 10 miles out of Montgomery when our daughter, who 
the newspaper reporter then texted us. Now, we met up with some people from our congregation who were also touring these sites, mm -hmm. but I spent the rest of that day alternating my attention between the memorial and the museum and my phone. Uh, just, I had my Twitter feed is set for all kinds of news, including from the Jewish world. And I was on my phone looking at it probably about every two or three minutes. And I say that because, you know, I'm there visiting a memorial to lynching of African-Americans over the history of this country. And on my phone, in a very modern way, I am getting almost instant instantaneous reports about uh, the uh, massacre of, of, of worshipers at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. Now, when I got back to Atlanta, uh, I spent the next two or three days writing stories about that pretty much for the Jewish newspaper in Atlanta. So I want to say one couple other things about Charlottesville because there are memories attached to these incidents. The lingering memory for Charlottesville are the television reports, particularly from the Friday night when a few hundred primarily young men, many of them dressed in khakis, carrying lighted tiki torches, marched yeah. through the University of Virginia campus, chanting slogans such as Jews will not replace us. That is the visual image that stands out from Charlottesville. Uh, in terms of in an case, image, it really it's a harrowing idea, just that. Well, if you think about it, it dates back to something from the 1930s mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in Germany, a, night, a nighttime march with uh, torches in support of an ideology. Now, I mm -hmm. don't want to draw, you know, I'm not making too direct the connection, but I'm saying in terms of the visual image, yeah. that one stood out from Charlottesville. There were others. Uh, now, Pittsburgh, the memory is not, it's not a visual image. The memory is how I felt when I first picked up my phone when my daughter called and I started seeing all the news. It was, and I use this phrase in at least a couple of columns that I wrote, it was a punch in the gut. I mean, it really, it was a person, it felt personal mm -hmm. because Anyone could have been in those synagogues. Uh, this person could have picked a synagogue in Atlanta, in Chicago, in New York, in Des Moines, Iowa, in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, anywhere to commit uh, this type of an atrocity. He picked this synagogue because they had been active on behalf of immigrants. But it was the gut feeling more than a visual image that stayed with me yeah. uh, from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Which is, I mean, yeah, it, it it kind of well. First of all, it, it it puts that almost that semblance of well, not almost that semblance because it is very much um, a feeling of being attacked, even if it wasn't you, you personally. Um, yeah, Charlotte. I'll say this: Charlottesville did not feel like an attack. Charlottesville, I think, a lot of Jews saw those pictures, and they might have been somewhat horrified, but I don't think they were shocked. Mm -hmm. We're surprised because this type of ideology has been expressing itself in this country for some time. 
It's kind of like same old. It's kind of, it's a little bit more well, visual. I don't want to say same of... old, but it, but it was it, there. It was on television, something mm-hmm. that you knew existed, right? And that you know we've seen uh, in Atlanta and in other uh, places uh, marches by white supremacists or or, or, or neo Nazis, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. just you're plain everyday old bigots. Uh, Charlottesville presented that image that harkened back to something else. Uh, Pittsburgh, I think that any Jewish American who even infrequently goes to synagogue, or even if they don't, felt something when they heard that news, because it was just so horrific. Uh, It was so horrific in the moment, and it stayed that way, and it has stayed that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how did you feel during the um, Unite the Right march? I mean, this idea that these kind of far-right groups that, you know, as you say, have existed for some time, the, the idea, these ideologies are nothing necessarily new, none of this is original. Um, but the fact that there was this kind of march to try and attempt to unite these groups, I mean, did that... Well, they called it, look, they called it Unite the Right, but this is hardly a, a united group. These are splinterings of, uh, of white supremacists, neo-Nazi, and other ideologies who came together for this purpose, but mm-hmm. probably don't get along otherwise. I mean, 14 of these people, I believe, have been convicted uh, in, in a trial recently in, in Charlottesville, Virginia, for their various roles in this. Now, you and, you, know, you and I had discussed Charlottesville earlier, uh, and yes, I do have a, a, a personal connection of a sort to what happened there. My nephew and his wife uh, lived in Charlottesville at the time. Mm-hmm. She was then the associate rabbi at the only synagogue in Charlottesville, and he headed up the congregation's security committee. Uh so I'll call her my niece. Right. Uh, she was on the front line with the local clergy on the steps of the Methodist church, confronting uh, the, the uh, army of hate, if you will. Wow. But she's, an, she's an itty bitty little thing. So a lot of the other clergy kind of protected her. But at the same time, my nephew was inside the synagogue, which was not very far away. The night before, they had removed all but one of the Torah scrolls and taken them out for safekeeping. They did not know what would transpire. It was a matter of safeguarding those sacred texts. Now, during the day itself, there was no way I was going to be in touch with uh, my niece. Uh, She was literally at ground zero. I messaged with my nephew during the day. And for a while, they were staying in the synagogue building because outside, in front of it, walking around just to make themselves, their presence known, there were three or four men in uh, heavy camouflage uniforms carrying uh, military-style assault rifles. And they were just simply walking in front of the synagogue to let the Jews know we're here. Well, um, you know, they, my niece and, and my nephew no longer live in Charlottesville, but I, I talked to them enough to know that they carry with them some really awful memories from that weekend. Not only the march, but they rushed to the scene where that car plowed into 
uh, counter demonstrators who were walking away from the scene and people were injured and a woman was killed. So they carry these memories of this profusion of hate and, and violence from that weekend, which you wouldn't want anyone to have that as part of you know their memories, but it stays with them. No, I can imagine. I mean, it, that kind of a, and obviously, you know, luckily the 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 synagogue um, wasn't wasn't touched, and and um, you know, it, it, it turned out relatively all right, considering what could have potentially happened overall. Um, but at the same time, it does, you know, for anybody that's in that situation, it's just it's just bound to to remain with them for potentially forever or definitely a very long time, just purely because of how harrowing that whole situation would be. Um, even in the months, I gotta I have to tell you that even in the months before the Unite the Right rally, there had been white supremacists, the neo-Nazi demonstrations in Charlottesville. So it isn't as if the clergy in the community yeah. or the Jewish community in particular or this one synagogue uh, were not aware of the issue, not aware of the presence of these people, not aware of the threat. Mm -hmm. But yes, there were a lot of points during that weekend where things could have gone one way or the other. Now, look, a few dozen people were injured. A woman was killed uh, by that motor, by that driver who was among the people who've been convicted in a trial. Uh, but yes, could it have been worse? It could have been much worse. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's the fear that uh, the Jewish community in Charlottesville lives with. That's the fear that after Pittsburgh, in particular, the Jewish community in the United States lives with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We know there are people who do not like us, whether it's for religious reasons, whatever the reason. But Charlottesville drove home that these people will parade in public where they might not have done that in recent decades. Pittsburgh brought home a very visceral, personal, threat to health and to safety. Mm -hmm. uh, I will tell you that I don't know anyone now who goes to synagogue for any event where there is not an off-duty hired police officer outside wow. uh, with their vehicle, with their, with their sidearm. It, it is an absolutely unfortunate, regrettable, but necessary yeah. uh, protective step mm -hmm. no i mean considering um considering the evidence it does it does make perfect sense it's 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 tragic at the same time but it does make make perfect sense and how do you feel like you know um things like unite the right and and, and the events that we spoke about how has that affected america's perception of its own capacity for hatred and uh, more specifically, anti-Semitism. You know, you when you first uh, mentioned this topic to me, uh, I wanted to chuckle, not because it's funny. Um, it's not funny in the least. But at this point in its history, Americans have a pretty good idea what their fellow citizens, uh, what their capacity is for hate. I live in Atlanta. Uh, I've lived here for about 35 years. Uh, there are uh, people I know black and white, who were here, who were in various parts of the South during the civil rights movement. They have a really good idea 
what their fellow citizens' capacity for hate is. Uh, you know, those images from Charlottesville, particularly that nighttime march and the anti-Jewish chanting, shocked people only because of its brazenness. As I say, Pittsburgh was a horrifying incident. But remember, not three years earlier, in 2015, a young man, a white nationalist, walked into a black church, a prominent black church in Charleston, South Carolina, sat down and prayed with them, left the church, came back with a weapon, and killed nine people. So the idea that this threat exists only to Jews within the walls of their synagogue is that isn't that's not true. Uh, African American churches feel this. Muslim mosques feel this. I imagine that sick uh, good waters feel this. Uh, there is a constituency in this country, as there is in the UK, as there is in, in other countries in Europe, oh, uh, where the outsider is targeted not only with uh, um, what you might call a low-grade dislike or a low-grade hate, but in some cases are targeted for violence. Mm -hmm. Open but hostility, yeah. The Muslim community in this country knows it. The Sikh community knows it from an incident in Wisconsin uh, at its house of worship uh, maybe a decade or so ago. So uh, the idea that you know this somehow changes uh, the perception of Americans' capacity for hate, no, sorry. There are so many of these watershed moments against the Jewish community as of late that their frequency and content are as dangerous as they are absolutely ridiculous. From their alleged control over the media and banking industries and grasp on Hollywood, given the Jews' supposed influence, you'd have thought we would all be lighting Hanukkah candles this past December and that Christmas would have been cancelled this year. And yet, <laughs> I'm fairly certain that all those who expected him had visits from Santa Claus in 2021 even if he was probably wearing a cherry red mask and his reindeer were probably socially distancing along the reins. But St. Nick's new safety precautions aside, the Jewish people have been subject to many a conspiracy theory, both today and over the course of our history. Hate is often, all, all, you know, anti-Semitism, as is racism, sexism, whatever else, you know, based on often um, completely misleading bits of information, um, completely misleading bits of uh, bits of info that are just often completely untrue. Um, but in recent years, we're starting to see it get more and more, I'd say, outrageous. You know, and, and, and I don't think that's, I don't think there's any better way of, of, of describing or showing this than the... Um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, you know, article or, or, or conversation around the Jewish space lasers conspiracy theory. And I was wondering what, what your take on was on America's reaction to this. I mean, the fact that a elected politician is able to come out. I mean, when I when I, I have to confess, when I read the article about this conspiracy theory, I actually had to read several more because I genuinely believe this was untrue. I genuinely did not believe that an elected politician would come up with something like this. Well, on the surface of it, uh, it would seem to be an item from a, the popular website, The Onion, which uh, if you've never 
for those in your audience yeah, satirical. who have never, who, never so. uh, looked at the onion, mm -hmm. it, it's satirical. But every once in a while, something appears in the onion that you go, wait a minute, is that right or not? Uh, look, uh, about Marjorie Taylor Greene and the space lasers, that space laser comment was tied to a much older anti-Semitic trope mm -hmm. involving the Rothschild family. It was Jews through the Rothschilds who were financing these supposed space laser. And you know, the, the anti-Semitic tropes about the Rothschild family go back a few hundred years now. Uh, the Jewish space laser thing may be the funniest thing Marjorie Taylor Greene has said. And she is funny in the most number. tragic way possible, I think. Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, if you're familiar with the, the Mel Brooks, you know, there's a Mel Brooks movie um, that concludes with a satirical song, We're Jews in Space. Um, look, if you go to certain Jewish websites now, you can buy a patch that says Jewish Space Laser Division. I mean, you know, <laughs> it. I say this. I say this. Do you know what the best way of dealing with these kind of um, yes, with these kind uh, of anti-Semites, racist bigots is sometimes to just make fun of them because what they say is so utterly ridiculous. That go back to uh, Charlie Chaplin's impressions uh, impressions of Hitler. Yeah, I mean, Char You know, it's not a new tactic to use humor, but look, it was. A, she has said a lot of egregious things. Hmm. Um, her congressional district is about 45 miles northwest of where I'm sitting right now. Oh, wow. I have written about her district. It is historically quite a conser politically conservative. Mm -hmm. I regard her as something of a sideshow. She is not the headline act when mm -hmm. it comes to the problem of anti-Semitism in the United States. She receives this attention because... The constituents in her district elected her to the United States House of Representatives. She is one of 435 elected members of that governing body. Uh, I look at her more as a concern than a threat. America has had loudmouth demagogues throughout its history. I mean, if you go back to the 1920s, 30s, it was a Catholic priest, Father Coughlin, who would come on the radio to an enormous audience and spout anti-Semitic garbage. Right. Um, this is the price that comes with the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. This is what comes with a protection to an exceptional degree compared with most countries oh, of yeah. free speech. Uh, I would say, and uh, uh, when I was thinking about things that you might ask, uh, look, uh, you can stand on a soapbox on a corner in Hyde Park and spout off just about anything you want. Yeah, uh, Speaker's you Corner. Can, speaker's Corner. Uh, you can go on the internet and create your own version of Speaker's Corner. Mm -hmm. um, and all of this... Yeah, it's called Twitter. You can well, go on. <laughs> uh, okay. And all of the... Well, there are others. There are other sites on Twitter that we, I'm not even going to name them where you can find this stuff, but... Oh, yeah. There, um, there's a lot worse. Actually, to be fair, Twitter's not actually that bad no. if you consider uh, how how far you can go down that rabbit hole with and the... Uh... It, 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 Twitter, you can self-select what you're seeing. I mean, you know, 
If I yeah. choose to see this stuff, I choose to see it for informational purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea of free speech, whether it's in this country, whether it's in the UK, whether it's in France, uh, wherever, um, tolerates a certain degree of, call it outrageousness, offensiveness, uh, misinformation, inaccuracy. But again, in the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, you know, there's a small Jewish community in her district, uh, in the town of Rome, Georgia. And yes, it is called Rome, Georgia, because it is built in hills, something like the Italian city of Rome. Uh, there's a synagogue there that was founded in 1875. There has been a Jewish presence in that community, you know, for 155 or so years. And what was their reaction to her being well? Being it's elected? a small. It's a, it's a small community, mm -hmm. and uh, I happen to know they have a visiting rabbi, uh, not a full time rabbi. And I happen to know him, and he was absolutely disgusted. And I asked him, "How do the members of the congregation feel?" And he says, "They're disgusted. This isn't someone they voted for." Um, this brings the kind of trouble to their little synagogue that they don't need. They don't need flyers attached to their door and they don't need a member of Congress making disparaging comments about Jewish life or the Jewish people. Um, but, you know, they have to, they live there. So, um, you know, it's not that they, they're not shy about expressing their opposition. It's just, that there's a lot more to life than, than this one congresswoman. Now, remember, we have elections coming up in November in the United States. Either she will or she will not be reelected. That depends on how the voters in her district feel about the way that she has uh, represented them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, do you feel like there's a... Because, um, uh, I mean, she says some outrageous things, some quite, quite hardline things. Do you feel like there's a, there's a shift towards people like I, her or away from people like her because i think that, that 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 makes it quite telling as to, to how well because she's make, she's outrageous but she's definitely not the only politician on right. in either country uh, in, in the us or in the uk that i, I that can happen. make the i can make that argument mateo going both ways mm -hmm. um i can make the argument that there is more of it i mean uh, there was a member of the us house of representatives from the state of iowa who is no longer in the U.S. House of Representatives, but made numerous disparaging comments about immigrants. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some members, sitting members of the United States House of Representatives today uh, who make routinely outrageous comments. It's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene. There's a woman representing a congressional district in, in, in Colorado who is also uh, prone to such, uh, to making outrageous statements on a variety of subjects. So on the one hand, you can say, well, these are elected officials in the United States. So there must be a greater tolerance of this. But then you look at the public reaction to things that Marjorie Taylor Greene says about Jews or other subjects, and the degree of public, the, the degree of public outrage and uh, reprobation about her statements says to you, well, there is less tolerance for it. So, as I say, it, the argument can be made in, in both directions. Mm -hmm. We are at an interesting point 
in civil society in the United States, where, uh, as anyone from another country can see, the citizens of this country are polarized along a dozen different lines. Yeah. And uh, expressions of uh, not dissent, but of, uh, of intolerance uh, are, are quite prevalent. And there is also a backlash when public figures make these kind of statements, whether they're elected to public office or whether they're in the world of sports, in the world of culture, in the world of film, in the world of entertainment. You both have more outrageous things being said and a greater public distaste for it all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, um, definitely. And on... Um... <clears throat> On that, I wanted to, and obviously we we spoke a little bit about it um, already. I'll, I'll buy it very briefly. Um, but how do you feel the rise of social media and technology um, has affected anti-Semitic rhetoric and the spread of these conspiracy theories? Anti-Semitic rhetoric is not new. Mm-hmm. The internet makes it much easier to spread. You can... You can spread this type of, uh, of, of hate without using your own name. Uh, you hide behind your keyboard. Um, the same is true for, you know, things that are said about other communities, religious, ethnic, immigrant. Um, the, the internet not only allows you to say, uh, you know, whatever hateful thing you might want to say, but haven't had the courage before, but now you can do it anonymously. Conspiracy theories are nothing new. I mean, mm-hmm. not in this country, not in your country. They date back hundreds of, hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, the difference is now that someone can go online and develop a greater following for a conspiracy theory. Uh, I don't want to dignify them because they don't deserve to be dignified, but there is a movement in the United States and some very, uh, a corner of the politically conservative world uh, known as Q. And whoever is behind this puts out outrageous theories to the point where people descend upon a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. because they are convinced that in the basement of this restaurant, there is a child pedophile ring being run. Well, there's no child pedophile ring. There's no basement in that building. So, but people believe these things. And uh, I will say that um, my former colleagues at CNN, um, about a month ago, did an interesting set of reports about people who were part of this conspiracy world and now are starting to come out of it. Not all the way. They, they, they understand that a lot of what they had been attached themselves to is not correct, but is not true. But they also talk about how easy it was to become attached to a belief, how easy yeah. it was to become attached to an ideology. And I would point out that if you talk to people who are experts in how terrorism operates. They will tell you that uh, the people who are recruiting uh, will find those, they will find the weak link. 
They'll find someone online who seems mildly disaffected and they will encourage them and they will bring them into their fold to the point where these people don't realize that they've been recruited, that they've, they've been drawn into this. They believe they have found a group of kindred spirits. So it's, you know, yeah. conspiracy theories about Jews are not new. They proliferate on the internet. Conspiracy theories in general are hardly new. And what's interesting is that if someone, you know, published a letter to the editor in the New York Times, not that they would publish it, or the Times of London, not that they would publish it, spouting this stuff off decades ago, uh, their employer would have cut them loose immediately. Uh, their social club would have barred them from the door. Their friends might have walked to the other side of the street. But today, you hide behind uh, the internet. I'm um, on a computer screen and you can be anybody. You can be anybody. And yes, it, it is the cost you pay for, for being hateful mm -hmm. is less. And the opportunity, as you say quite correctly, to attract not just an audience, but to attract followers, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's yeah. much easier. Because yeah. obviously you being... Um, a journalist and obviously working for, for, for CNN, there's often this debate around what the media, and when I say the media, I mean <laughs> professional media, you know, journalists, actual journalists can do in the fight against um, misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories, etc. And, you know, there's this one argument that it's good when media outlets cover these situations and, and, and cover conspiracy theories to kind of out them, debunk them, etc., but it can also have the opposite effect where it essentially um, gives undue attention to said conspiracy theories. It kind of, it's almost like a kind of situation of you're either damned if you do, damned if you don't. And uh, I'm kind of curious as, as a journalist, what can your colleagues, what can journalists effectively do to combat uh, anti-Semitism and, and, and this kind of hatred online, if anything? This is an ongoing conversation among journalists. Mm -hmm. And as I say, I take an old school definition of a journalist. Someone sitting at home behind their computer saying, hey, look what I found online. This must be the truth. That's not journalism. <laughs> journalism involves not only gathering information, but assessing uh, its veracity, uh, assessing whether it is uh, true and or whether it is something that if I put this out here, uh, I'm just spreading something that I cannot show has a basis in reality. Yeah. Um, I would say that uh, I want to be careful about saying journalists combat anti-Semitism. When I write about incidents of anti-Semitism uh, and I report on them or I write a column about them, am I combating them? I don't look at myself as combating them. I'm reporting what has happened in my column. I am offering uh, context and perspective, but I'm not out uh, in public with a, a banner uh, combating. There are organizations in every community, in every religious community, every faith community, every racial community, whose job that is. For example, in the United States, the Anti-Defamation League or the American Jewish Committee they are out front. That's what they do. They are not journalists. They are advocates. Um, what I would say to journalists, and this is way beyond anti-Semitism, 
report what you know is accurate. And as it is necessary, but with care, report what is not accurate, but what is being publicly promulgated. You're right, Matteo. There's a danger that when you report on the conspiracy theorists, you not only shine a light, I was going to use a, well, I'll use the term, you're not only shining a light on the cockroaches in the corner, but uh, you, the, you run the risk of someone going, but wait a minute, I like those guys. I think they're right. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join in with that. Um, and, you know, definition of terms, the media. Once upon a time, I could have told you what the media was. Now the media is such a broad term, it really has lost its meaning. Once upon a time, I could very easily have told you what a journalist is. But now people claim to be journalists who do not fit the, uh, and I'm using quote signs with my fingers here since your listeners can't see it, uh, who call themselves quote unquote journalists mm -hmm. because they have an audience in an online world. Um, what I would say to journalists is this, try to tell the forest from the trees. Uh, understand the difference between an individual who is spouting off or an organization or a larger movement based on some hateful uh, belief, whether it is against Jews, Muslims, uh, Blacks, immigrants, whatever it is, LGBT community, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, reporters, now dealing with the Jewish community, develop sources within the various ends of the Jewish community so that when there's a crisis, you have contacts. You mm -hmm. have people that you trust that, who know you and will talk to you rather than trying to develop contacts on the fly, which any journalist will tell you is not the best way to get information. Because if you don't have contacts, then you're kind of trying to make them at the same time you're you know, looking for the information itself. You, and I'll say this, you don't have to be religious to cover news about religion. Uh, you just have to appreciate that news about religion is news. Uh, this applies to people who cover, write about any Jewish, any religious community, Jews, mm -hmm. Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, Buddhists, Baha'i, whomever. Uh, I am part of a national organization of uh, journalists in the United States who write about various aspects of religious life. And one of the slogans of the group informally is, religion is always in the room. If you're talking politics, if you're talking economics, if you're talking social issues, religion is somewhere in that room. And I have to say, I do know of uh, people who do this in the UK, journalists who cover religious issues for not religious media, but for very large secular media, mm -hmm. and they face the same challenge. Uh, they have to have sources within these communities so that when someone attacks a mosque, they know who to talk to. And when someone says Muslims are this or that, they know who to talk to who can present them the counter argument. But as I, as I said a moment ago, report what is accurate and report with context and as necessary and only as necessary Report on what is not accurate, but is being put out there to such a loud volume that it has to be addressed.
Even with Dave's poignant words about the ways to combat anti-Semitism, we must face the reality that the propaganda machine of anti-Semitic discourse will never truly turn off. But with that reality comes a responsibility to act. When they came for the Jews, or anyone for that matter, in comment sections or in the streets, we must speak out, irrespective of their dogma or their location. Because the only way to properly eradicate hatred is to stand up to it in all its forms, tropes and heads. Together, as Holocaust survivor and revered writer Elie Wiesel said, when human lives are endangered, when human dignity is in jeopardy, national borders and sensitivities become irrelevant. Wherever men or women persecuted because of their race, religion or political views, that place must, at that moment, become the centre of the universe. Thank you for listening to Season 2 of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all of our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This episode is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London. Thanks for listening, and remember, stay informed.